Chapter Six of Little Fishers and Their Nets by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How it succeeded. Mrs. Job Smith leaned against the table in her bright kitchen, caught up the edge of her apron in one hand, then leaned both hands on her sides and thought. Jerry had been consulting her. Was there any way of planning so that the front room in the Decker house could have a carpet? He repeated all Mrs. Decker said about a room not being homelike without one, and Mrs. Smith, at first inclined to combat the idea, finally admitted that in winter a room where you sat down to visit did look kind of desolate without a carpet, unless it was a kitchen and had a good sized cook stove to brighten it up. There was no denying that that square front room would be better for a carpet. At the same time, there was no denying that the Deckers needed a hundred other things worse than they did a carpet. But the hearts of the boy and girl were bent on having one. And what the boy was bent on, Mrs. Job Smith liked to have accomplished, and believed sooner or later that it would be. The question was, how could she help to bring it about? There's that roll of rag carpeting brand new, she said aloud. Mrs. Smith had spent a good deal of her time alone, and had learned to hold long conversations with herself, arguing out questions as well, sometimes she thought better, than a second party could have done. At this point she put her hands on her sides. There's enough of it, and more than enough. I had it made for the front room the year poor Hannah died, and sent me that Broughton carpet which just exactly fitted, and is good for ten years' wear. That rag carpeting has been rolled up and done up in tobacco and things ever since, most two years. Sarah Jane doesn't need it, and I don't know as I shall ever put it in the kitchen. I don't like a great heavy carpet in a kitchen much, anyway. Rugs and square pieces that a body can take up and shake are enough sight neater, to my way of thinking. But I can't afford to give away brand new carpeting. To be sure, it only cost me the warp in the weaving, and I got the warp at a bargain, and old Mother Turner never did ask me as much for weaving as she did other folks. The rags was every one of them saved up. Poor Hannah used to send me a lot of rags, and Sarah Jane and I sewed them at odd spells when we wouldn't have been doing anything. It is a good deal of bother to take care of it, and I'm always afraid the moths will get ahead of me and eat it up. I might sell it to her for what the warp and the weaving cost me. But land, what would she pay with? I might give her a chance to do ironing. I have to turn away fine ironing every week of my life, because I can't do more than accommodate my old customers. Who knows but she is a pretty good ironer. I might give her the coarse parts to iron, and watch her and find out. Job is always at me to have somebody help with the big ironings, and I have always said I wouldn't have a girl bothering around, I would rather take less to do. But then, she is a decent quiet body, and that Nettie is just a little woman. She will have to do something to help along if they ever get started in being decent. Perhaps ironing is the thing for her, and I can start her if she knows how to do it. For the matter of that, I might teach her how if she wanted to learn. To be sure, they need other things more than carpets, but it wouldn't take her long to pay for this if I just charge for the weaving. I might throw in the warp, maybe, seeing as I got it at a bargain. The two are so bent on having a carpet for that room, and Jerry, he said he prayed about it, and while he was on his knees, it kind of seemed to him as though I was the one to get to think it out. 
That's queer now. Jerry don't know anything about the carpet rolled up in tobacco in the box in the garret. Why should he think that I could help? I feel almost bound to somehow after that. I don't like to have Jerry disappointed, nor the little girl either, now that's a fact. I take to that little Nettie amazingly. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll talk with Job about it, and if he is agreed, maybe we will see what she says to it. This last was a kind of make-believe, and the good woman knew it. Job Smith thought that his wife was the wisest, most prudent, most capable woman in the world, and besides being sure to agree to whatever she had to propose, he was himself of such a nature that he would have given away unhesitatingly the very clothes he wore if he thought somebody else needed them more than he. There was little need to fear that Job Smith would ever put a stumbling-block in the way of any benevolence. But who shall undertake to tell you how astonished Mrs. Decker was when Mrs. Smith, having duly considered, and talked with Sarah Jane, and talked with Job, and unrolled the tobacco-smelling carpet, and examined it carefully, did finally come over to the Decker home with her startling proposition. It is true that a carpet had taken perhaps undue proportions in this poor woman's eyes. Her best room during all the years of her past life had never been without a neat bright carpet. It had been the pleasant dream of her second married life, so long as any pleasantness had been left to allow of dreaming. And she could not get away from the feeling that people who had not a scrap of carpeting for their best room were very low down. She opened her eyes very wide while listening to Mrs. Smith's rapidly told story. What kind of a carpet could it be that was offered to her for simply the price of the weaving? For Job and his wife, after some figuring with pencil and paper, had agreed together heartily to throw in the warp. She went over to the neat kitchen and examined the carpet. It was bright and pretty. There was a good deal of red in it, and there was a good deal of brown, a blending of the two colors which had been the subject of much discussion between herself and husband in the days when Mr. Decker talked anything about the comforts of his home. How well it would look in the square room which had two windows, and was really the only pleasant room in the house. Surely she could iron enough to pay for that. "'I am not very strong,' she said with a sigh. "'I used to be, but of late I've been failing.' but Nanny is so handy and so willing that she saves me a great deal, and she has a notion that she would like to fix up the front room and try to get hold of my norm. It would be worth trying, maybe, but I don't know. We are very low down, Mrs. Smith. And then Mrs. Decker sank into one of the green-painted chairs and cried. Of course it is worth trying, Mrs. Smith said, bustling about, as though she must find some more windows to raise. Tears always made her feel as though she was choking. If I were you, I would have a carpet and curtains to the windows and lots of nice things and make a home fit for that boy of yours to have a good time in. There is nothing like a nice pleasant home to keep a boy from going wrong. Before Mrs. Decker went home, she had promised to try the ironing the very next week, and if she could do it well enough to suit Mrs. Smith, the carpet should be bought. "'Poor thing,' said Mrs. Smith, looking after her and rubbing her eyes with the corner of her apron. "'The ironing shall suit. If she irons wrinkles into the collars and creases in the cuffs, I won't say a word. 
only I guess maybe I won't give her collars and cuffs to iron, not till she learns how. I ought to have done something to kind of help her along before, only I didn't know what it would have been. It takes that boy of mine to set folks to work. Meantime, that boy sat in the kitchen door studying, not from a book, but from his own puzzled thoughts. He did not see his way clear. Under Nettie's direction he had planned a very satisfactory sofa with a back to it and two chairs, but how to get the material needed to finish them, and also for curtains for the new room, had sent Nettie home in bewilderment, and stranded him on the doorstep in the middle of the afternoon to think it out. "'How much stuff does it take for curtains, anyhow?' "'For curtains?' said Mrs. Smith, coming back with a start from her ironing table and the plan she had for teaching Mrs. Decker to iron shirts. "'Why, that depends on what kind of stuff it is, and how many curtains you want, and how big the windows are.' "'Well, what do they use for curtains?' Mrs. Smith still looked bewildered. "'A great many things, Jerry. They have lace curtains and linen ones, and muslin ones, and in some of the rooms up at Mrs. Barlow's on the hill, you know, when I helped her to do up curtains that time, they had great heavy silk things, or maybe velvet, though the stuff didn't look much like either. I don't rightly know what it was, but it was heavy and soft and satiny, and shone like gold in some places.' Jerry turned around on the doorstep and looked full at Mrs. Smith and laughed. "'I know,' he said. "'I have seen such curtains. They are damask. I am not thinking about lace and damask and all that sort of thing. I mean for Mrs. Decker's front room. What could be used that would do, and how much would they cost?' "'Surely,' said Mrs. Smith, coming down to everyday life, "'what a goose I was!' I might have known what you were thinking about. Why, let me see. Cheesecloth makes real pretty curtains. If you have a bit of bright calico to put over the top and a nice hem in, or maybe some bright calico at the bottom to help them hang straight, I don't know as there is anything much prettier. Though to be sure they aren't good for much to keep people from looking in, and they aren't quite suitable for winter. I suppose you want to plan for winter, too?' I'll tell you what it is, I believe that unbleached muslin makes about as pretty a curtain as a body could have. Put bright red at the top and bottom, and they look real nice. What is unbleached muslin? I mean, how much does it cost? Why, said Mrs. Smith, dropping into her rocking chair, and folding her hands on her lap to give her mind fully to the important question, as to that, I should have to think. I'm not very good at figures." Unbleached muslin costs about eight cents a yard, or maybe ten. We'll say ten, because I've always noticed that was easier to calculate. Ten cents a yard and two windows, say two yards to each, and no, two yards to each half, four yards to each, and twice four is eight, eight yards at ten cents a yard. How much would that be, Jerry? You can tell in a minute, I dare say. Eighty cents, said Jerry with a sigh. I am afraid she will think that is a great deal. And then there's the red to put on them. What does that cost? Why, that ought to be oil calico, because the other kind ain't fast colors. I don't much believe you could get those curtains up short of fifty cents apiece. And that is a good deal for curtains, that's a fact. Paper ones don't cost so much, but then there's the rollers and the fastenings. I don't know, but they do cost just as much. 
and then they tear. I don't want her to have paper ones, said Jerry decisively. A dollar for the curtains, and I don't know how much more for the furniture. She can't imagine where the money is to come from. I could tell where it ought to come from, said Mrs. Smith, nodding her head and looking severe. It ought to come out of Joe Decker's pocket. He makes his dollar a day even now when he doesn't half work. Job said so only last night. But furniture is dreadful dear stuff, Jerry, worse than curtains, and they need about everything. I never did see such a desolate house. And those little girls need clothes. Nettie is going to make them some clothes, said Jerry. She has some that she has outgrown, a great roll in her trunk. She is going to make them over to fit the little girls. She is at work at some of them today. And you know, Auntie, I am making the furniture. Making it? Well, making it skeleton. If we had some clothes to put on it, I guess it would be furniture. I've made a sofa and two chairs, and I'm at work at a table. Only I would like to see how the things were going to look before I went any farther. Making furniture? repeated dazed Mrs. Smith, and she shook her head. I don't see how you can. You can do a great many things that no other boy ever thought of, but I'm afraid that's beyond you. Why, you see, Auntie, she has seen some made, and she showed me what to do with hammer and nails. You make a frame just the size you want for a sofa, and put a back to it, and then it is padded with cotton, and covered with something bright, cretonne, I think she said they called it, only it wasn't real cretonne, but a cheap imitation, and they tack a skirt to the thing in puckers, so. And he caught up a bit of Mrs. Smith's apron to illustrate. I see, she said, nodding her head and speaking in an admiring tone. What a contriving little thing she is, and what about the chairs? The chairs are served in very much the same way. The table is just two flat boards and a post between them, nailed firmly, then they tack red calico or blue or whatever they want around it, and cover it with thin white cheesecloth or some lacy stuff. She had the name of it, but I've forgotten. It doesn't cost much, she said, and tie a sash round it, and it looks like an hourglass. The question is, where are the cotton and calico to come from? Well, said Mrs. Smith, you two do beat all. It can't take much stuff for a little table, and I can see that they might be real pretty. I want a table myself to stand under the glass in my front room. What if you was to make two, and I'd get cloth enough for two, and she would do mine and hers to pay for the cloth? Jerry sprang up from his doorstep and came over and put both arms around Mrs. Smith's trim waist. Hurrah! he said. You are the contriver. That will do splendidly. I'll go this minute and set up the skeleton of another table. I have two boards there which will just do it. Then we'll think out a way to get the rest of the stuff. Now Nettie, busy with her fingers in the house next door, had not left the others to do all the thinking. She knew the price of oil calico, and imitation cretonne, and unbleached muslin, she knew to a fraction how many yards of each would be needed, and the sum total appalled her. Yet she too knew that her father earned at least a dollar a day, and did not give them two a week to live on. This her mother had told her. 
Also, she knew that on this Saturday evening at about six o'clock, he would probably be paid for his week's work. Couldn't she contrive to coax some of the money from his keeping into hers? She had hinted the possibility of her mother's getting hold of it, and Mrs. Decker had said that the bare thought of trying made her feel faint and sick, that if she had ever seen her father in a passion such as he could get into when things did not go just to suit him, she would know what it was to ask him for anything. Nettie, who had not yet been at home a week, had some faint idea of what her father might do and say if he were very angry. Nevertheless, she was trying to plan a way to meet him before he left the shop, and secure some of that money if she could. With this thought in view, she presently laid aside the neat little petticoat on which she had been sewing, brushed her hair, put on her brown ribboned hat and her brown gloves, watched her chance while the children were quarrelling over an apple that Jerry had given them, and stole out in the direction of the shop where her father worked. She would not ask Jerry to go with her, though he looked after her from the barn window and wished she had. If her father was to grow angry and swear, and possibly strike, no one should know it but herself, if she could help it. I must not forget to tell you of one thing that she did before starting. She went into her mother's little tucked-up bedroom, put a nail over the door, which she had herself arranged for a fastening, and knelt there so long by the barrel which did duty as a table, that her mother, had she seen her, would have been frightened. But Nettie felt that she needed courage for this undertaking, and she knew where to get it. Then she had to walk pretty fast. It was later than she thought, for just as she turned the corner by the shop where her father worked, the six o'clock bell began to ring. Hello said one of the men, standing in the door while he untied his leather apron. "'What party is this coming down the street? The neatest little woman I've seen for many a day. A stranger in this part of the world, I reckon. Doesn't fit in, somehow. Do you know who it is, Decker?' And Mr. Decker, thus appealed to, came to the door in time to receive Nettie's bow and smile. "'That's my girl,' he said, and a look of pride stole into his face. She was a trim little creature. It was rather pleasant to own her as his daughter. "'Your girl!' and the astonishment which the man felt was expressed by a slight whistle. "'I want to know now if that is the little one who went away six, seven years ago, was it? She's as pretty a girl as I've seen in a year. Looks smart, too. I say, Decker, you better take good care of her. She is a girl to be proud of.' At just that moment Nettie sprang up the steps. "'May I come in, father?' she said. "'I wanted to see where you worked.' Her voice was clear and sweet. All the men in the shop turned to look. The foreman, who was paying Mr. Decker, and who had begun severely with the sentence, two half days off again, Decker, that sort of thing won't,' stopped short at the sound of Nettie's voice, and gave him the two two-dollar bills and two ones without further words. Six dollars! If only she could get part of it! How should the delicate matter be managed? Suddenly Nettie acted on the thought which came to her. What more natural than for a child to ask for money just then and there? She needed it, and why not say it? Perhaps he would not like to refuse her entirely before all the men." and poor Nettie had a very disagreeable fear that he would certainly refuse her if she waited until the men were gone, 
Even if she found a chance to ask him before he reached the saloon just next door, where he spent so much of his money, or at least where his wife thought he spent it. "'May I have some of that, father? I want some money. That is one of the things I came after.' That was certainly the truth. Why not treat it as a matter of course? Why should I take it for granted that he is going to waste all his money? said poor Nettie to herself. All the same, she knew she had good reason for supposing that he would. Money, he said, as he seized the bills. What do you know about money or want with it? Oh, I want things. The little girls must have some shoes. I promised to see about it as soon as I could and then I want to buy your Sunday dinner, a real nice one. The tone was a winning, coaxing one. Nettie did not know how to coax, was not very well acquainted with her father, did not know how he would endure coaxing of any sort, but some way must be tried, and this was the best one she knew of. Divide with her, Decker, said the man who had first called his attention to Nettie. She looks as though she could buy a dinner and cook it, too. If I had a trim little girl like that to look out for my comfort, hang me if I wouldn't take pleasure in keeping her well supplied. He sighed as he spoke, and nobody laughed, for most of them remembered that the man's home was desolate. Wife and daughter both buried only a few months before. This man sometimes spent his earnings on beer, but he was accustomed to say that there was nobody left to care and that while he had them, he took care of them, which was true. Nettie looked up at the man with a curious, pitiful interest. His tone was very sad. She was grateful to him for his words. Was there possibly something sometime that she could do for him? She would remember his face. All the men were looking now, and there was Nettie's outstretched hand, her face a good deal flushed, but it wore an expectant look. She was going to believe in her father as long as she could. "'Go ahead, Joe, divide with the girl, such a handsome one as that. You ought to be proud of the chance.' "'You have something worth taking care of, it seems, Decker.' It was the foreman who said this, as he passed on his way to the other side of the room where the men were waiting. Whether it was a father's pride, or a father's shame, or both these motives which moved Mr. Decker, I cannot say— but he actually took a two and a one, and placed them in her hands, as he said hastily, "'There, my girl, I've given you half. You can't complain of that.'" End of chapter 6